This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for creating a blog, a website, a portfolio, or an online store. Create your own space today by visiting squarespace.com and use offer code TREK10 to save 10%. Plus, if you'd like to support our programming personally, visit trek.fm donate to get our alien badges and art prints featuring original illustration by Tobu Ushi. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. How we doing, Trip? Ready when you are. Prepare for war. Course laid in, sir. Request permission to get underway. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Warp 5, our dedicated Enterprise show. I'm Christopher Jones, and joining me once again, as she does every single week from that magical land down under Australia, it's Kate Walsh. But, Kate, that's an interesting outfit you've got on today. That looks like some warrior gear that you're wearing. Yeah, it is. You know, I've got to come um, dressed to impress. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know what it's like with with warrior races. You, it's all about appearances in the first instance. You've got to look fierce and menacing. So I've got my stripes happening. I see. Yeah, that 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 is what I think warriors really need. That is sometimes missing in Star Trek are stripes. You know, they're mm. they're, they're big on the armor. You know, they're big on the big shoulder pads and all. But stripes, and the pips? they sometimes overlook the pips. Yeah, sometimes they overlook stripes though. I mean, that, that's the in thing. the fashion world, really, stripes outdo spots any day. So it's no wonder that stripes in a warrior race are going to be so much more menacing than pips. <laughs> now I'm picturing warriors boarding the ship with <laughs> dots all over them. Yeah, I don't think that's going to work very well. I think Neelix that sounds would like, like that more of a Ferengi though. thing to me. <laughs> yeah, it does, right? Yeah, I think it, I think it would be. Well, Kate, we're talking about warriors, of course, because we're going to talk about Klingons tonight, and we're going to talk specifically, of course, about Klingons on Enterprise. Before we get into Klingons, specifically in Enterprise, I did want to ask you, when I say Klingons to you, which series is the first one that comes to mind? TNG. TNG. Okay. I I was curious. I think for most people... It's either going to be TNG or it's going to be the original series, depending Mm. on which is your favorite series and maybe depending on your age a little bit. Well, what about you, Chris? Well, see, that's the the thing. For me, probably TNG as well. Although, you know, I watched the Klingons on the original series and I was familiar with Klingons for a long time before TNG ever came around. And so... I'm one of those fans who it took time, you know, to adjust to the idea. Not not really the forehead ridge thing, that's never really bothered me, but just mm. the the idea that there was Kor and there was Koloth and there was Kang and those were the Klingons. And then eventually we get Worf and then TNG really fleshes out the Klingon culture. You know, Ronald D. Moore did such a great job on the next generation of 
actually building a culture around a race that while everyone thinks of the Klingons, you know, they're probably the most entrenched villain race in Star Trek because of their origins on the original series. You know, they really weren't on the original series all that much. They were only in seven episodes. And of those seven, for me anyway, there are really only three major episodes, and that's Errand of Mercy, where Kirk faces off against Kor on Organia. The Trouble with Tribbles, of course, facing off with Koloth on Station K-7. And then Day of the Dove, where Kirk and his crew face off against Kang there on the Enterprise. And even though there are four other episodes that have Klingons in them, uh, and yes, there is Kraus and Friday's Child where he's around all the time. It's just not the same as those three for me. But yet everyone, you know, the Klingons were so huge. I mean, for me, the, I think of TNG when I think of Klingons because they were fleshed out so much more. And mm-hmm. and they also, well, it was the start of the Klingons that we come to know in, in the rest of Exactly. They're so different in the original series. I can't imagine. And I'm sure there are people who think when they think Klingons, they think TOS Klingons, but but they're a completely different race and not just in their appearance, but in their culture and the way that they're portrayed and conceived. Yeah, they're very different. And, um, you know, in in TOS, they're more of the, they're just, they're just the villain, right? They're the dark skinned Mm. villain. And otherwise they look pretty much like our characters, although they've got the little mustache going. Mm. And it's a lot it's of just, shoe polish happening. Yeah, right, right. And it's it's just basically that. And of course, they kind of play the role of the Russians in the original series. And we've talked about on the network in the past on other shows how the Romulans and the Klingons, their roles within the series flipped from the original series to the later day series. But that's a topic for another time. As far as Klingons, let me ask you this. Which series do you feel had the most appearances of the Klingons in the series? My my first thoughts are DS9. Very heavy on the Klingon stuff, yeah. yeah. It is DS9, in fact. Ronald uh, D. Moore was the Klingon guy. Right, right. But the, the reason I ask you is because, again, you said TNG originally. That's what you think of when you think of Klingons. Mm. And I think most of us really still, even though the Klingons were around DS9 all the time, uh, they were part of that bigger story that was going on. And mm. the episodes that they're in don't necessarily focus on the Klingons. They're kind of there. Uh, so there are Klingons in 49 episodes of DS9. And that's actually 28% of the episodes in the series, mm. uh, which is actually far more episodes than Garrick is in. And yet Garrick, I think, has a much bigger presence on the mm. series Derek's one of my favorites in Deep Space Nine. Right, what you remember. Now, on TNG, the Klingons were in 31 episodes, which is 17% of the episodes. TOS, I said only seven. That's 8% of the episodes of TOS. And Voyager is not worth discussing here, where Mm. Klingons are concerned, because we're not counting main cast members, of course, so Bellana would be excluded. Enterprise had 11 episodes with Klingons, which actually comes out to just about 11% of the series and we get to see them right off the bat in broken bow. So why don't we start there with the introduction of Klingons to enterprise. And of course, viewers seeing that show for the first time meeting Klingons, 
what did you think about using Klingons in not the very, very first scene, but for all intents and purposes, mm. the first thing that we see in this series? Well, the more I think about it, the more I think it's a fascinating creative choice. You know, this is a series being defined by the relationship between humans and Balkans, and yet we start off with a Klingon scene. Now, this is, for all intents and purposes, we're thinking, oh, you know, what, what's going on here? This is all about the Klingons. And, and, and we pretty quickly learn that it's actually the first contact with Klingons. Once again, fascinating, given that the whole series is kind of spinning off from first contact and then looking at 100 years later and where do humans go in their relationships with Vulcans. So it's an interesting choice and, um, you know, for, for a number of reasons for me. Um, but it certainly gets our attention. It's the Klingons are a race that are visually striking, immediately recognizable. And so for an opener, it was a dramatic scene. Um, but I think, you know, the way Enterprise was pitched, it was looking for a new audience as well. So perhaps from a creative perspective, it would make sense to include a Klingon quite, once again, a dramatic looking species in an opener as opposed to a Vulcan, which just has funny ears, um, you know, to really <laughs> grab that eyebrows. new audience. <laughs> True. Although Klingons, they have some pretty killer eyebrows themselves, I have to say. They do. Well, you know, if I'm remembering correctly, it's either on the season two Blu-rays or the season one Blu-ray. It's probably on the season one Blu-rays, actually, because, of course, it being Broken Bow. Uh, don't Rick and Brandon mention at some point that they feel that maybe they introduced the Klingons too soon by having them at the very beginning of Broken Bow? Yeah, I, I do seem to recall something along those lines, and you know, and perhaps wanting to 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 increase them at a, at a slower pace to lead us into these different relations with races that we know and to make that right. more of a plot device yeah. maybe rather than just a quick kind of getcher at the start. And I mentioned that because I wonder if, if you feel this way, I kind of feel this way, having the Klingons at the very beginning of the series running through that field, do you think that was born out of the discomfort that the studio had in the idea of the prequel series to begin with. So I'm not really thinking about how Rick and Brandon felt about it, but it's more sort of the pressures that the studio was putting on them creatively, because we know that, that they were interested in having the first season be about the building of the ship in the first place and taking mm -hmm. place on earth. And, you know, the studio is like, no, we want science fiction. We want Star Trek. And, of course, we know that the studio wanted to have a 24th century show, really, so they could sell more merchandise that everyone was familiar with. And so I feel almost like, I feel like we met the Klingons too soon. And I feel like that was one way of immediately telling the audience, this is Star Trek. Mm. Because otherwise, you, you know, because the feeling of the show itself is really, I mean, you can tell it's Star Trek, or at least I can, if I'm just walking by the TV and it's on back when it first came on. But for a lot of general public, general audience, it doesn't quite have the same feel as the other series. But having that Klingon there as a way of screaming, hey, we're Star Trek. Mm. 
I think knowing Rick and Brennan's vision based on what they've said in the Blu-rays about wanting Enterprise's first season to be earthbound and to be focused on um, the building of the first warp by starship. That that opening sequence in the cornfield makes perfect sense. That in a sense, that's an homage to that original vision. It's very earthbound. It's very earthy. Okay, that's a good point. Um, I think, however, in that context, yes, the Klingons possibly were introduced too early, because that brings us straight back to the Star Trek we've known, right? Space faring stuff and all you know those those species that we haven't technically met yet and it 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 convolutes that that message of being earthbound a little bit oh we're straight yeah. back into okay here's the klingons again and we're going back out into space so maybe right. a little bit of a contradiction in that sense now once we move beyond broken bow i feel like they handle it a little bit better so you know we do have mm. an encounter with klingons in unexpected but it's it's in a brief there towards the end we we do encounter Klingons and sleeping dogs, and that's all for season one. And then in season two, we have Marauders. Mm. Uh, then we have Judgment, and uh, then we go on from there. So it, it felt like we're starting to just have these little brushes with them after mm. that, which is kind of how I think it should have been, that we would encounter them in space, and we would slowly kind of learn about them uh, the Vulcans obviously know who they are and know to kind of stay away from them. So it worked a little bit better once we got past the setup of the pilot episode. And I'm glad that as the show went on, they weren't in a huge amount of episodes. They didn't become a feature race that we're running into every right. five seconds. They were kind of, and, and really, we, we don't see them in season three at all. We come back to them again at season four, and they're in there a little bit in season one and two. Right. Yeah. And I think that's good. And I think that works well because, yes, that they're obviously in the vicinity. We're going to run into them. But this show is not about the Klingons. If, if you would right. say it's about any race, it's about the Vulcans. Exactly. Okay, so that's where we meet them, and then we have the brush with them in Unexpected, but then we get to Sleeping Dogs, where they find this ship in the atmosphere of this planet, and they decide very naively at this point, I think they decide to help. And I love Archer's line, he says in this episode, remind me to stop trying to help people. And <laughs> I know exactly. I mean, I feel like that myself sometimes with, you know, people I know. And, you know, you go out of your way to help people and you always get bitten. And that's exactly what keeps happening to Archer because he keeps trying to help people. And in this case, he's trying to help Klingons and he hasn't learned yet that mm. uh, the way that they've acted towards you up to this point, um, that's who they are. And that's what's going to mm. happen every time. He reminds me sometimes of, of people that I've come across in various professions. You know, I, I'm employed in the public service and come across people that go into some professional services and you ask them why they went into it and they say, I just wanted to help people. And there's this naivety of, you know, I, I just I just want to be a good person. And then they mm -hmm. get into the job 
and they realize that it's all about funding cuts and it's all about making tough decisions and having to choose between one person and another as to who gets the service and uh yeah you know archer faces those tough decisions himself and you know, he originally went out there i'm just I'm gonna go out and explore space and meet people and say hi make yeah. friends so in Sleeping Dogs, what did you think about this female Klingon officer who wakes up? Her name is Buka. And did you buy her as a Klingon? <laughs> did I? I guess I did. I mean, I thought she was a fairly typical Klingon woman. Did but, you? You know, my She's assessment the best looking of- Klingon I've ever seen. <laughs> my assessment of Klingons in general, though, is that they're pretty two-dimensional. So, you know, yeah. I don't have high expectations for them as characters. Unless they're a lead character like Worf. Right, yeah, or Martok. Mm. But I don't know. I mean, aside from Belana Torres, who's only half Klingon, she was the prettiest Klingon I've ever seen. I just, I had a little bit of trouble with, I think the casting was not quite the best casting. Uh, she, She was fine as an actress, but as a Klingon... I don't know. She mm. felt a little bit too nice and too. I, maybe she was Klingons just supposed to be a young pretty. Klingon. Not like this. Not like this. Mm. And maybe that was a makeup issue, though. Or, or did you think it came across in the way that she portrayed her character? Was she a little too soft? I thought she was a little bit soft. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And the makeup for sure. But I thought she was a little bit too soft as well. But, and she's the only one until the very end, you know, who's actually up and about. And And, uh, if anything, I probably would have thought that being the only one, she might have been a bit more aggressive than she was, a little more defensive. Well, that's part of, that's part of what I'm getting at, I think. Yeah. 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 So she seemed like a young Klingon on the ship. It was an interesting episode though. It was. And, and. She also, I mean, I have to give her credit. She knows how to fly a Starfleet shuttlecraft with no training because <laughs> she goes through the door and a few seconds later, she's already taken off. If it wasn't so. for that grappler, she'd be off and away. <laughs> if it wasn't for that grappler. Don't you just love the grappling hook in Enterprise? <laughs> yeah, I do, actually. <laughs> I like the way they use it. There's the there's the time where they use it to actually rip the nacelles off of a ship it reminds me of the old Inspector Gadget episodes, you know, go, go, gadget arms, and they go out and extend. And- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that would be good. Uh, one thing I did like in Sleeping Dogs, in terms of introducing the audience to Klingons and letting us get the feeling that our crew was just becoming familiar with them, is when Hoshi and Paul and Reed go over to the Klingon ship, and there's Klingon writing like on the wall, and Reed is like, "What language is that?" And of course, you know, later on in Star Trek, there's no character who wouldn't immediately recognize Klingon. And mm-hmm. you know, I have I, I I have the feeling that the majority of Starfleet officers probably read basic Klingon. You know, the way you and I could read French or German or Spanish mm-hmm. or you know. It's languages that have we're we're familiar with enough just basic words from them that yeah. we would know immediately what we're looking at, even if we don't actually speak those languages. That's probably true. Um, 
the, I mean, this is the thing that stands out to me about this particular episode, um, Sleeping Dogs, is that um, it's we're putting in the perspective of these characters of learning about Klingons for the very first time. And that's important for storytelling, but it's also important in the context of Epi- uh, Enterprise as a series because I really think that the way in which the show was being pitched was at people that potentially have not watched Star Trek before, you know, first-time viewers. And this episode comes pretty early on in the first season uh, and it's, um you know, after that, you know, the pilot and then the brief encounter in Unexpected. It's really our first look at Klingons in any real detail. And so we kind of get those somewhat cheesy lines from T'Pol and Archer here and there going over the basics of Klingon culture and honour and the food yeah. that they eat and so forth. Um, but you can see that it's it's not geared so much around people that have watched a lot of Star Trek before. It is really get around first-time users, which is something that's unique to Enterprise. Yeah, that that's a very good point, and I think it's one that we often don't think about. Uh, speaking mm. of the food, I felt like this ship kind of had a five-star chef aboard or something <laughs> because the food seemed to be a bit, you know, higher end than what we've seen in past Star Trek. Everything was a little bit neater. It was like a little bit less disgusting. With the sprigs of parsley on the top of that gach, a bit of a giveaway. <laughs> yeah, it was that. The slice of lemon as well. <laughs> and, the, and the way it was twisted, it was very artistic. You know, we're, yeah, yeah. We're, we're really big yeah. on artistic presentation of food in Japan. And, and I felt like, you know, whoever was running <laughs> the galley on this Klingon ship, may, um, may, maybe they studied in Tokyo or, or Kyoto even. Either that, or they just took pride in their work. Maybe so. But back to the language bit there. It was another case, you know, last week we talked about Hoshi and we talked about how Linda Park did a really good job of dealing with all the alien language that she had to memorize Mm. in order to play the character. And this was another case where, you know, they Enterprise, they threw that language element at us and Hoshi was able to read a lot, but she wasn't sure about everything that she was reading. And I also like the comment that she makes about speaking Klingon is different than reading Klingon. Mm. And, you know, for me, it rings very true that, you know, speaking Japanese is very different from reading Japanese. And it it takes you a lot longer to learn to read a Japanese than it does to actually speak it. It's interesting that you say that because that was one of Japanese was the first language that I thought of in, in, in hearing that line recently. And, I know a little Khmer and it's much easier to speak Khmer. Writing it is an absolute nightmare. Oh, um, yeah, I bet. And interestingly, you know, Klingon uniforms, particularly in um, the motion picture, were designed around, you know, Japanese styling as well. So it's interesting that yeah. there's kind of those parallels with uh, Japanese language too. A little bit there. Or yeah. ori- Oriental, yeah. um, maybe more generally. So it is a bit like that uh, in the in the reading. You know, I think Chinese is probably, I don't know, to me the the one that's the most difficult to figure out how to read, just because in Japanese we at least have a we have two syllabaries that we use, so it's not completely kanji like it is in Chinese. So it makes it a little bit easier. But but it was nice to see that. And then when Hoshi goes and when she 
wants to, well, well, she's actually, I guess, doing it more for T'Pol and Reed, but when there's lots of Klingon coming out, she'll actually pull out the UT. Whereas if they're just going around the ship, she can actually just read that stuff herself. So that was a nice element and a great way to kind of ease us into the Klingons there. Was there anything else that stood out? Well, one thing, just as kind of a transition to lead into a couple of other episodes, one thing that you and I had talked about was whether Enterprise added anything to the Klingons mm-hmm. beyond what the previous series did. So in Sleeping Dogs, did you feel like that added anything else besides the little language element we talked about? In Sleeping Dogs, no, I didn't. No. I felt that Sleeping Dogs reinforced everything we already knew. Right. It, it yeah. spoke about... Um, you know, about, about the style of the language, it spoke about their food, it spoke about their sense of honour. Um, at one point, um, uh, you know, they just spoke about how it's not hard to make an enemy of the Klingon Empire, that they wouldn't have escape pods because it would be cowardice to abandon ships, that Klingons right. don't ask for help so they don't have distress beacons. Yeah. Um, you know, there's all these kind of reinforcements of general Klingon culture and, and beliefs um, about them being driven by a warrior mentality that anyone could be a potential enemy and death yeah. before dishonor and, you know, all these right. kind of phrases that were thrown at us throughout this episode, which really only reinforced what we already had. Right. And also at the end, when the ship is repaired and the captain's awake again, the very first thing he does is he tells Enterprise to surrender mm. and he's going to destroy the ship. And and that also to me, just it just reinforced like, okay, what's different here? There's really nothing different. These are the same Klingons that we had in The Next Generation and that we had Mm. in DS9, that we had in the original series films. And it kind of... The Vulcans we talked about earlier. Again, I love the Vulcans in Enterprise because I can see that they're different than the Vulcans of the 23rd and 24th century. And so we can Mm. see a realistic cultural progression how a society changes over time over centuries and even going back to broken bow which we you know we we've kind of skipped over for the most part here at the end of broken bow when we get back when they go to chronos and we're in the chamber that familiar chamber setting it has kind of a retro feel to it a little bit but Mm. otherwise it's pretty much what we're already familiar with and their attitudes are pretty much what we already know. And that's what we get at the end of Sleeping Dogs as well. So I feel like it, it just reinforced that these are the same Klingons mm. that we've always known. I mean, with the Vulcans, it's not so much that I thought these are different Vulcans. I very much saw them as the same race, but perhaps a deeper exploration of that. I didn't think that. Obviously, there was a time difference, and so the relationships with humans would evolve and Mm -hmm. would become more solid. But I could still see them as the same race, just that more thought had gone into who they were, what the nature of this relationship was, what their culture was. So that was something that I really appreciated in Enterprise. I think that that is much more difficult to do with the Klingons because the conception of them as a race is much more two-dimensional. And in particular, I think of Star Trek Into Darkness and the Klingon scenes that we see there, and that really doesn't add anything at all 
you know no. you make them a bit darker a bit grittier give them some piercings and and there you go that's the unique spin on it you know that's not really adding any value to the race at no. all no not at all so okay let's let's skip over marauders for a second because i want to go to judgment because it just ties into mm. to what you said there the one point in all of these 11 appearances by Klingons and Enterprise, the one point where I think that they made an attempt to do what we're talking about, which is to show Mm -hmm. that these people are different and a little bit more diverse, is in judgment. And it's at the end of judgment, and it's the conversation that Archer has with Kolos, where Archer asks him, how many cases have you won? And Kolos says, you know, I'm not sure, maybe it's over 200, but it was a long time ago when the tribunal was a forum for the truth and not a tool for the warrior class. And then Archer's surprised and he says, there are other classes. And Colo says, mm. you didn't believe all Klingons were soldiers. And Archer says, yeah, I guess I did. And I think Archer is speaking for the Star Trek audience at that point, that because of the way the Klingons have been portrayed in Star Trek, I think we all pretty much do. Even though we know that a society can't Mm. function if everyone was a warrior, we're still left with that feeling that the Klingons are basically a a race where just everybody is a warrior. When in actual fact, it's when you think about it, it's probably more that it's the warriors that are put up on a pedestal that are revered and it's an aspirational thing and not literally that all of them are warriors yeah and they're a small percentage of the population that there's going to be public servants there's going to be grocery right. store and you know there's going to be all well, there's going to be artists of, i mean someone that. has to write that klingon opera that Worf likes to sing on the bridge of the defiant I, well this is true so, but this was the point and And Kolo says, my father was a teacher, my mother was a biologist at the university, and they encouraged me to take up law. And he says, now all young people want to do is take up weapons as soon as Mm. they can hold them. And I I thought that that was just this little Mm. glimpse in Enterprise where for a moment they touched on something that they should have been doing throughout the series every time they brought the Klingons on to, mm. to to add something to it. And they pretty much failed to achieve that with the Klingons throughout the series anytime they brought them on. But even, you know, Deep Space Nine, as we've said, had a lot of Klingon stuff in it. And yeah. it was quite satisfying. We we still learn a lot about the Klingon Empire. But yeah, they never really went that way. They never looked at them um in any depth and, you know, what well what, how does this they, society really operate? You know, is this sustainable yeah. to assume that everyone's going to be a warrior? That Yeah, that's pretty much true. Although what DS9 had that the other series didn't have is that they had General Martok. And Martok mm. is the most well-rounded, except for Worf. And, and he's mm. probably equally so with Worf, the most well-rounded Klingon that we have in Star Trek. And through Martok, we are able to start to get the feeling that there's more to the Klingons than just the glory of battle. I mean, even though for him there is that glory too, but he's a more, he's a wiser, Mm. more nuanced Klingon than we see elsewhere. And granted through our core characters, we do see other elements of Klingon culture as well. 
And the, the relation here is that in order to get this bit that I'm talking about here in judgment, they basically had to have General Martok because Kolos is played by J.G. Hertzler, mm. who plays General Martok. And, yeah. and I, I almost feel like the scene wouldn't work. It wouldn't carry the same weight with someone else playing it. Because I, I feel like Hertzler, after so many episodes on Deep Space Nine, that he became that character bit. And so he's able to to deliver this to us and to Archer in a way where it actually did connect, at least for me. And there's something about JG's portrayal of uh, Martok and, again, Kolos in Enterprise that has a softness about it. You know, in both right. characters, we see yeah. that there's a kindness, and um, yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but that's a really good point. That yeah. the casting of that character was crucial. He already really related important. to the race, and he brought the the perfect personal qualities to that character on right. an individual level as well. Now, while we're talking about judgment, I also wanted to ask you how you feel about this episode because now you and I approached. We came to Star Trek in different ways. Um, I, again, I grew up watching TOS in reruns in the 70s. And from the motion picture forward, I saw every installment of Star Trek as it aired. So every movie, every episode, as it aired, in the order it aired. You, however, came in later on down the road. Which did you see first? Did you see the Enterprise episode Judgment first, or did you see The Undiscovered Country first? Judgment. Okay, that's what I thought. What did you think about this episode when you saw it the first time? I found it really satisfying. I, I thought it added so much depth, you know, in, in just such little moments in that rivalry um, that was happening in the courtroom, you know, uh-huh. in Collis's, um hopelessness you know he'd given up fighting which in itself was ironic for a Klingon mm-hmm. and you know an archer giving him back that will to fight it's just learning that you know, and, and as we've said it, you know, it never really occurred to me that there might be Klingons that do jobs other than being a warrior even though we'd seen Balana and we'd seen Worf it just never really occurred to me to think of Klingons as anything other than warriors. So I found that episode extremely satisfying and in just the smallest of moments added so much to the franchise as a whole. Okay. Yeah. Now, the things that you talk about here are, those are the good points of the episode. Mm. The problem for me is that it all gets lost in the wrappings because they're based, they're just taking it's one of those cases where Enterprise lifts something from Star Trek that already exists mm. to try to put it in and say that, and it makes sense. I mean, if we think of Star Trek as a reality, it makes sense that, yeah, maybe this has happened before and maybe Archer was in this situation. And But really for the rest of us, we saw the undiscovered country and we saw Kirk and McCoy in the same tribunal setting Mm-hmm. And and it was done on a big screen budget as well. And so when Judgment came on, I just, I, I think I actually pretty much re- literally rolled my eyes when it came on because mm-hmm. I was like, really? 
are we going to do this? And, and it just feels hollow to me because mm. when the Klingons captured Kirk and took him there, it was like the culmination of decades and decades of them pursuing this person that they saw as the arch enemy of the empire. And it was mm. like a glorious moment for the Klingons that they had finally captured James D. Kirk and they could take him there and they could find him guilty and they could send him to Rurapente. And judgment is just built on the premise that Archer helped this one group of aliens to escape the empire. And so they're going to put him on this grand trial for it. And it all just rang really hollow to me. And it was to the point where the great conversation, the great mm. moments between Archer and Kolos, and like you describe how Archer helps this Klingon learn to fight back again and not to give up, it gets lost for me. And I'm putting that in that perspective. It, that that seems to summarize for me the polarized opinions about Enterprise as a whole. You know, people coming at the show from completely different perspectives and right. seeing different things in it. Um, whether they take value from something or whether yeah. it just seems like a bit of a ripoff or being shortchanged. Right. Well, that's why I ask because, see, for you, you were able to mm. see the the core of what was going on there without being mm. distracted by everything else. So I personally would have liked to have seen Archer help Colas in that way, except not have it wrapped in the tribunal, not have it be Rurapente again. Mm. I mean, even in the Undiscovered Country, what Kirk and McCoy have to do in order to escape Rurapente, and yet here, somehow, Malcolm's able to just get in the caves. I've spoken with some young people who I consider under 30 who have since watched Star Trek Into Darkness, and they've never seen The Wrath of Khan. And their perspective on that movie is so different to mine. Yeah. And I yeah. imagine, you know, and not, not all Star Trek fans, but some. And, uh, yeah, it, it's a similar thing, I guess. Yeah. Well, I was curious what you thought, and but, but I do like that final conversation. Yes. And, and I wish that that had been more of what was done with the Klingons throughout Enterprise, and it would have added a bit more. Uh, Marauders we skipped over. Mm. What did you think about Marauders? In terms of a Klingon episode, it was fairly typical Klingon stuff. You know, the Klingons yeah. rock up as bullies, um, get their comeuppance, and, and we move on to the next episode. So it, it doesn't, to me, if it's good enough episode, but in terms of Klingon culture, what it adds, it, it, it's not a standout for me in that respect. I think it just reinforces, as we said earlier, yeah, what we already what we see already as, as Klingons. And, of course, these yeah. Klingons are they're kind of bullies and they're going to go pick on these miners because they can, pretty much. Mm. I mean, if I was going to summarize of, of all of the Klingon episodes, then the judgment and, and particularly that, that last part of the episode that you've, you've mentioned is probably the standout from all of Enterprise in terms of what it adds to the Klingon race that we've come to know with the one yeah. exception of the um, Klingons without forehead ridges. So let's move then to that as, as the last point here. 
uh, of course, we have bounty, we have the expanse, we have some, you know, kind of encounters with Klingons along the way. We get into the whole borderland augments, the affliction divergence bit there towards the end. Mm. And in terms of did Enterprise add anything new to the Klingons, I think affliction and divergence is where you could say that, yes, they added something new. Mm. However, and tell me what you think about these two episodes. And I said at the beginning, I'm not one of those fans who has ever been bothered by the fact that the original series Klingons didn't have forehead ridges and later on they did. Because, look, it's it was hard enough for them to get Star Trek on television in the 60s. They didn't mm. even have money to repaint the walls all the time. So they had to do those white walls and splash lights on them to, you know, cut corners. Yep. On it budget. was a production issue, not a plot issue or a character right. issue. Right. I mean, so it's fine. And of course, when they had money to do movies, they decided, well, let's let's do something here. It's fine. Never bothered me at all. And the fact, I, I did like in Trials and Tribulations on DS9, I did like that the attempt that they made there to explain it was just a joke. You know, mm. Worf says, it's a long story and we don't discuss it with outsiders. And so however oh, well see i disagree a little bit there i think the, okay, i think the moment they they made that line that commits it to being it, i didn't get the impression that wolf was saying it as a joke and so in that context they were making it a plot issue right well that's that's the and next therefore thing at that point say. it needed to be resolved Right. That that's where I was gonna go. And so no, I don't think Worf was saying it as a joke, but I do think the writers were saying it as a joke. It was supposed to be a humorous line. But yes, as you said, once they did that, well, that opened up a whole new can of worms about okay, well, it was a thing. It wasn't just a makeup mm. thing. There really was something going on. What was going on? And so Enterprise decided that they needed to try to explain this. And I just really feel like it's something that didn't need to be explained. I, I think that leaving it with whatever can of worms was opened by DS9 was fine. And we didn't really need to go there. And so I I think when you when you write a two-part episode for the pure reason of trying to explain a controversy amongst fans that really doesn't need to be explained in the first place because fans are debating something that was uh, based on budgetary restrictions and creative choices. I think you have a little bit of a, you're running into a problem when you're writing a story in order to explain a fan controversy. Uh, okay. I think I think I, I agree with you on that, but I think others may disagree because they're coming from a different fan perspective, and that's the yeah. whole point here, that right. they legitimately did feel that it was an issue that needed to be explained, and that's why it was such a contentious discussion point. And I think the people that uh, – I'd love to hear anyone's feedback on this, but it, the idea of a, a prequel um, is – you know, it was quite contentious. I mean, what what is a prequel? What does it mean for a show to be a prequel? For me, a, a prequel, you know, an Enterprise prequel was was about more so the time period and what happened during that era and what led up to 
um, to certain events, the forming of the Federation, learning about early Starfleet history. Whereas there are others that see the prequel as more, it's a prequel to TOS and therefore Mm -hmm. being defined by its relationship to TOS much more strictly. I do think that that has its limitations and it's been said before that when you go into that frame of mind around a show, it can become very kind of tokenistic and I think we're fortunate that in some ways um, it, it was really only one season that we had of that. I think had it gone on to season five, it would have perhaps moved on to other things, more about the Federation, the different races. I think the it Romulan would have, yeah. War, the Romulan War um, because there, there is a risk that it's going to become tokenistic. Manny Koto was clearly of a very different mindset about what a prequel would be than Rick Berman and Brandon Braga were when they first yeah. started on Enterprise. And that to me symbolizes that fan conflict. If Manny Koto was of the mindset of, you know, well, we need to explain this, you know, this is a valid plot point that we need to work out, then it makes sense why we would get those episodes. Yeah. Whereas for me, that wasn't necessary and it wasn't the focus of what I would have thought a prequel would have been. Right. Although in this sense, that this storyline is not so much a prequel to TOS as it's a prequel to DNG, or it's at least a prequel to the motion picture because what's being said here essentially is that, okay, there was this program and we had these Klingons that didn't have forehead ridges because of these experiments that we were doing. And somehow all of the Klingons that Kirk and his crew encountered in the original series were a product of this program, which was shut down in the 22nd century. So... Mm. How does that work? And of course, then it gets muddier with DS9 because you have Kor, Koloth, and Kang in TOS with smooth foreheads, and then you have them again in Blood Oath with the forehead ridges. And so it's all it's something that it was it was a hopeless endeavor to try mm. to create a legitimate, believable in-universe explanation to this. And so I feel like I would have preferred to see Enterprise do something else with the Klingons for those episodes instead of mm. trying to explain the forehead ridges. I mean, the forehead ridges just seem like such, to me, just such a trite issue that it's yeah. not really worth yeah. the energy personally. But, but as you say, I mean, I, I, I can see, again, from another fan's perspective, mm. really, really wanting to see an explanation for oh, that. Yeah. And I can see Manny Cotto wanting to write that in and make that part of the of the season. So so it is what it is. And it does then appeal to other types of fans. So, right. you know, it gets gets other audiences in. And those episodes did rate very well. And they are good episodes in and of their own right. Well they're they're good episodes because of of the dilemma that Flox is faced with mm. more so than the actual explanation of the forehead ridges but but uh but they are what they are and again if if we are looking for something new that enterprise gave to cling on more well that that's something right there so there we go so any final thoughts on the klingons in enterprise i think we've said it all i think on the whole and i don't blame enterprise or the writers for this but i think once we moved into TNG and onwards, the conceptions of the Klingons were very limited, very two-dimensional, 
there wasn't a lot of scope to move within that, although, as we said in judgment, they did make a fairly good effort towards the end of that episode, and I appreciated that. It is one of the standout episodes for me, particularly in those first two seasons. And But I think on the whole, the Klingons that we're seeing are the Klingons that we've always seen. So yeah. it probably is a blessing that they don't appear too much because Enterprise needed to find its own path and it was ultimately a series about Vulcans and humans and their interactions. Yeah, yeah, I pretty much agree with you. I think that it was a really, really big challenge. How, how would, what would you do with the Klingons and Enterprise to make them different? You know, I mean, I, I can sit here now and say that I don't really feel like they succeeded in developing Klingons on the show. At the same time, you know, I don't really know what I would have done with them if I were writing these stories. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, I can think of things I might do with them, but they would have to be different stories. And then I have to think about, well, how do we get our crew into those situations where we would be delving more into a culture that our crew is supposed to be meeting for the very first time and doesn't know much about yeah. it. So, so it was a huge creative challenge. And at the same time, if they had not had any Klingons in the series, fans would mm. be wondering where are the Klingons, right? You know, Voyager yeah. is the only series that that we got that could successfully not really have Klingons in the series because they were far, far away from the Klingons. And so it was yes, that's right. easy for them not to encounter them. Uh, you couldn't have a series, even in the 22nd century, set in the Alpha Quadrant where you're not going to ever encounter a Klingon anywhere. So it was a big creative true. challenge. So so um, uh, I'm not really faulting the writers on what they did. Uh, I just... Um, you know, the the Klingons are one of the weak elements of Enterprise for me. I'd agree with that. But I would also add that I think they're one of the weak elements of the uh, franchise as a whole. Yeah, I don't know if I would agree with that um, entirely, but... Maybe on a par with Ferengi, although I think Deep Space Nine did a great job with both Ooh, of those species. Now, now that's going to be controversial. You just compared Klingons with Ferengi? <laughs> <laughs> Wow, okay. Send your feedback. To wow, okay, everyone, you can direct your, direct your hate mail to Kate on that one. I, I would not go that far. I do find it interesting that they were able to flesh out a race like the Cardassians far more than they were able to flesh out mm. the Klingons, even though the Klingons have appeared in every series and in every film as well, if you include a main character like Worf. So, mm. yeah. All right. Well, let's wrap this up before you say anything else too controversial here. <laughs> and I thought my controversy, by the way, was going to be that I said something positive about Deep Space Nine. <laughs> that, that would be a shocker too. All right. <laughs> All right. But Klingons are not the only thing we've been talking about on Trek Film this week. So, so everyone, here's some other things that you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, the orb. Looking for Parlock in all the wrong places. Well, and you also get the feeling here that she's only, re I mean, Worf really is only being rejected because she's not interested. It has nothing to do with whether or not Worf is Klingon enough or any of that. She's just not interested. She's interested in Quark. Earl Grey. 
Romulans on TNG. You know, it's this TV trope of of an actor playing their own descendant or, uh, you know, it doesn't make sense. Okay, fine. If you want to... Right, because Data never plays his grandfather or great-grandfather or own descendant, but, you know, that's a terrible storyline. Or Michael Doran. The Ready Room. Well, I think after what he went through with the Zindi, you know, you see he's become very jaded. He's very cynical about things, and it would be easy for him to stay in that place, and it would continue to grow, and he would become nothing like the person he was and and even lose sight of the person that he was and never be able to get back there to the journey voyager's funniest moments they're seeing sandrines for the first time and you see that pool shark guy who is such a chauvinist pig jerk who says something to the effect to balana of something like treat a lady like a tramp and a tramp like a lady it works every time And she says, Paris, did you program this guy? And he's like, yeah, why? She said, he's a pig, and so are you. Commentary, Trek stars. Battlestar Galactica. But with the the new series, it it really tried uh, to, to delve much deeper into the social commentary. You know, in a lot of ways, I think it was an excellent portrayal of a post 9 11 world. And I think it touched on um, a lot of aspects of our society. Warp 5. I'm not so sure that I can relate to the background as providing an explanation for her personal insecurities. I, I perhaps wondered if, if a part of that, I mean, it, you put her on, on Earth in her element doing her teaching, working with, with languages in that safe environment. I, I don't think she would have the same level of insecurity. Trek news and views. Barge of the Dead. So to actually get a character episode that doesn't just explore Balana, but ex- explores the Klingon mythos at the same time. I mean, that was two for one. Literary Treks. David R. George III, Revelation and Dust. And it feels like an evolution for Starfleet as well in the way that they built a Starbase. Well, I'm glad that came across because that was sort of one of the things that I was going for. You wanted it to be an evolution in Starfleet's construction of Starbase. Mm-hmm. It should be something brand new. And because it's an important station, because it's in an important location, it, it really needed to be, I thought, uh, a grand station. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and get your daily Trek Talk fix. We have new Trek Talk for you every day of the week. And some days we even have two shows for you. And you can find them in a variety of places, including iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zoom. You can stream or download from the website. So there are a lot of ways for you to get your hands on our shows. So uh, download them, get that Trek Talk fix, and you'll find the links to everything at trek.fm slash pd for podcast directory. All right, Kate, uh, usually we do have some sort of review or feedback from iTunes or elsewhere on the show. Do we have anything this week? We do. We've received a five-star review on the US iTunes store by Almighty Ellen. And um, this listener has commented that, and uh, with all modesty here, that it was great to hear my voice. But they've also said that your voice was pretty good too, Chris. I've really enjoyed the episode on Brent Spiner. But uh, yeah, it's nice to know that our our voices are soothing the airwaves. Yeah, I I like the way it was written. Great to hear Kate's (laughs) voice, comma. And yours is good too, Chris. (laughs) Thank you. As I as I told you on iMessage, it's my cute non-Australian accent. 
<laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, if you would like to leave us feedback as well, you can do that in iTunes, of course, if you like the show. If you want to drop by and leave us a review and a rating, that would be wonderful. It will help other Enterprise fans find the show. And also you can send us email by going to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. And you can choose to send to a show, choose Warp 5. That will come to both Kate and me by email. You can also click on the tab on the website to send voicemail if you would like. And you can record the message with your webcam's microphone and upload it to us as an MP3 file from the page there. We also have forums where you can discuss the episode with other listeners, and that's at trek.fm slash forums. There's one for the show. There's also one for Enterprise and many other topics about Star Trek. And in social media, you'll find us at facebook.com slash trek.fm, and you'll find us on Twitter, where we're always tweeting about Star Trek around the clock, and that's at username trek.fm. So, Kate, I guess the best way to reach you is through the email form on the website, right? That's right. Or in the forums. Yep, the Trek FM forums. We have um, sections there to talk about Warp 5 and Enterprise. Um, Chris and I keep an eye on that, and we'd love to chat with you about Warp 5 or Enterprise in general. So by all means, pop along to the forums, put a post and say hi to us. Great. And for me, if you'd like to catch me, you can do that on social media. On Twitter, my username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. I have the same username pretty much everywhere on social media, so you can find me under that. And also at my personal website at cbrianjones.com. And then also on the network, you'll find me on several other shows. First, there's Literary Treks, which I do with Matthew Rushing, and we talk about Star Trek books and comics and interview authors. And Matthew and I also do another show, which is one of Kate's favorite shows, in fact, which is The Orb. And the reason Kate loves it is because we talk exclusively about Deep Space Nine. Isn't that right, Kate? And the Ferengi. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Uh, I, I understand that you have the episode where we talked about Move Along Home, and you actually listen to that every night as you fall asleep, right? I listen to that episode regularly, and I've got <laughs> you know it dot-pointed all of the fabulous things about Move Along Home that Deep Space Nine fans just do not get. <laughs> your favorite episode of DS9. So uh, so those two shows I do with Matthew, and then you'll find me on The Ready Room every week where I'm joined by hosts from all around the network as we talk about all five live-action Star Trek series, Star Trek news, and other topics. And uh, check that out as well. It's a really fun show, a mix of humor, a mix of serious discussion. And uh, so that's where you will find me on the network. And also, Kate, before we let everyone go, we'd like to ask you to please support our sponsor for this week's show, and our sponsor is Squarespace. Squarespace is the web's best hosting in CMS that makes it really easy for you to create a beautiful blog, website, portfolio, an online store, really anything that you could imagine. And in particular, the online store, the commerce features they have are really amazing. I've had to set up stores for clients in the past, and it can really be a headache to integrate the ability to accept credit cards and process orders and do all this stuff on your website. But Squarespace has teamed up with Stripe to make it very, very easy for you to do that. Uh, it just takes a few minutes actually to set up. And uh, thanks to Stripe, you can be accepting credit cards, processing payments very quickly on your website. You can also gather shipping information or calculate taxes for you. And it starts at just $24 per month for the commerce feature. And it is really the best way you're going to find anywhere. If you want to sell physical or digital goods 
on your website, you definitely need to check that out. And again, if it's just a blog or a regular website that you want to put together, a portfolio for your art or your music, those start at just $8 a month. And you know, Trekka Film is built at Squarespace, my personal website, my company website. I use it for clients as well. You're absolutely going to love it. And you can try it absolutely free for 14 days, no credit card required. So just go over to squarespace.com right now Sign up for that free trial. In a matter of minutes, you'll be building your own website. And best of all, as a Trek FM listener, you can use offer code TREK10 to save 10% off your lifetime purchase on new accounts and choose the annual plan and get a free custom domain registration as well. And we really thank Squarespace for their support of Warp 5 and Trek FM. We also wanted to invite you to check out Andrew Allen's album, Smooth Federation. If you like the jazz cover of Where My Heart Will Take Me here on Warp 5, we even heard that some people like it better than the version used on the show, but who am I to comment, Chris? You'll <laughs> find that plus nine other jazz renditions of music from across Star Trek. So go and pick up the album in iTunes or on Amazon. Excellent. Yeah, it's really great stuff there that Andrew is doing. I actually play that. You know, I love jazz. I I play that album pretty often. And also, there's one more thing. If you would personally like to support what we're doing, there is another way you can do that. And that is to go to trek.film slash donate, where we have eight aliens gathered. These are original illustrations by Tobu Ushi, who does most of the artwork that you see on our website. We have them available as little badges, little buttons, also as art prints. And you can mix and match, choose which ones you want as badges or as art prints. And there are different contribution levels for you to choose from as well. So go choose what's right for you and which aliens you would like. And your donations help us pay for the cost of production, storage, and bandwidth that's needed to bring Warp 5 to you every week. So we really appreciate your support of the network. So thanks everyone for listening. Join us again next week here in the Decon Chamber for another episode of Warp 5. <laughs>